Hello and welcome to Listen Carefully. I'm your host, Nathan Jolly, and my guest today is Brian Ritchie, bass player and founding member of the Violent Femmes. Okay, so you just were touring 40 years of the debut Femmes album. You were 21 when you recorded that, 22 when it came out. How long had you been kicking around as the band by that stage? Because you're so young. Well, let me think. Okay, we started in 1981. We recorded the album in 1982. In 1983, it was released, and we already were touring the United States and Europe. 1984, we already made it to Australia. Quite quick going. Really very fast trajectory of creative and also commercial. Well, not commercial, but profile trajectory. Yeah, it took that album quite a while to sell, didn't it, in big numbers? Yeah, but it was a different landscape at that time. We didn't expect it to sell anything. You know, like we would have been happy if it sold like 50,000 or something because that was pretty much what the bands that we really admired, like television or the Ramones, you know, bands like that were selling about those quantities. And we thought that we might, if we were really lucky, have that kind of access to the public. But then the musical environment changed. They decided that they were going to turn alternative rock into a fad for a while. And we were close enough to that to capitalize. And so what year was that like late 80s by the time, if you're talking alternative rock catching on, like that would have been quite some time after that record. You know, it was obvious once Nirvana and uh, Green Day bands like that came along that moved the kind of music we were making up several notches yeah and your record would have been close to a decade old by that time yeah so you know a lot of the bands that we influenced ended up inadvertently helping us by just making the scene so much bigger like the pixies yeah that would have been quite odd to have a spotlight on music you made when you were so young and because by that stage you would you'd released yourself a bunch of solo albums you'd released a bunch of hems records what was it like to then have to go back and pay attention to this thing you'd made so long ago? Well, we're still paying attention, which is, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes people ask me, can I still relate to the subject matter? You know, but I think that that's, I mean, clearly the bass playing is, <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's adolescent bass playing. I don't know, but it would be hard to define that. Whereas when Gordon is like 60 years old and he's singing, come on, dad, give me the car, <laughs> it's kind of a non sequitur. It doesn't make any sense, you know, or why can't I get just one fuck means something way different when you're 60 than when you're 15. So, <laughs> That's true. you know, I think it's more his, and it's not a problem for him. He just embraces it you know he gets up on stage he stands in front of a microphone he sings those lyrics without any sense of campiness you know like when you see mick jagger it's kind of serious but it's also kind of campy you know yeah gordon just gets up there and he just approaches it like he's an actor and he's doing a role that he's maybe not completely properly cast for anymore but he's he's gonna do it mm-hmm <laughs> You mentioned the bass playing on those first albums. There's so much space made for the bass. It's the lead instrument in almost every song. Was that by design or was that just because there's just three of you and something had to fill it out? Well, because so much of our musical evolution was tied to the fact that we were playing acoustically and we were playing out on the streets. Right. So like Victor was not going to be 
going around with a wheelbarrow with the whole you know complete drum set and even if he did have a have it it would have been too loud for our acoustic guitar and bass so victor was just playing a snare gordon was playing an acoustic guitar and singing and with such a sparse uh guitar approach compared to like Jimi hendrix for example and with such a sparse drum approach compared to <laughs> uh let's say neil parrot right <laughs> yeah it leaves a lot of space for the bass so I, I think i benefited from the environment and also my philosophy of the bass i play in other bands too sometimes or i you know sometimes i play on somebody's record i just listen to the what the other people are doing and then i do what's missing sure but in the femmes there was a lot more missing you know like there was no bass drum so i might play a line that would be like Doom, 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 very much like a bass drum would do yeah gordon might have been singing and playing rhythm guitar so there's not a lead guitar so i would be doing fills or embellishments that normally the lead guitarists would do but we didn't have a lead guitarist so it wasn't really me asserting myself it was more like just doing what was appropriate in that particular setting although it's true that without a lot of a whole lot of technique and musical knowledge it wouldn't be possible to do a lot of the stuff that i did yeah a lot of it's really tricky like you have to <laughs> recreate all that now when you play live sometimes i'm on stage and i i'm like oh man why why did you come up with this bass line because <laughs> it's very, sometimes it's quite demanding yeah and athletic almost the first two femmes albums did you guys have all the songs ready before you even recorded the first album is that true pretty much yeah uh we had i would say well we obviously had every song from the first album and then we had i think maybe only the song hallowed ground wasn't already there when we made the first album gordon might have written that in between the recording of the first album in hallowed ground but never tell country death song i hear the rain uh it's gonna rain and i don't remember which other songs are on that album but i think they were all there when yeah. we made the first album so in other words we could have made hallowed ground first pretty much or we could have made we could have mixed all the songs together and made a double album or we could have made or, or whatever you know but we chose to put a spotlight on those songs that are on the first album so like when you say how do you feel about having to readdress it it's kind of our own fault because we chose to put out all those really catchy and commercial songs well what eventually became commercial on the first album so we're settled with that but we chose to do that and it hasn't been a problem because i mean like i was watching the green bay packers play football two weeks ago and when they went to the commercial break they played blister in the sun wow. so it's like it has become part of the overall cultural landscape i mean it's it's bigger than just rock music or pop music or music it's it's like something that the average person may have encountered just because they were watching a football game yeah it's now one of the biggest songs of all time which must be very odd considering how young you guys were when and how like it's not very commercial sounding like it's quite an indie pop song but that wasn't intended to be no. anything other than a good song we didn't say let's write a hit let's make this hit worthy let's let's make a hit recording we just made it and it wasn't even released as a single on, on the first album 
but it became a popular hit through word of mouth and just uh, airplay on college radio stations and then eventually being placed in films and stuff like that. How did you get involved with the guys from Midnight Oil? Were you already living in Australia when you met them? No, we met them back in, in the States. Right. We did some shows with them and we had several people on on our crew that were in common with their crew so like if we weren't touring they'd go with midnight oil if, if and vice versa so it started out as a social thing like peter and uh, my wife and i we would go for a hike or something like that we'd party with them and there was a really funny time when we went to the australian embassy in new york city mm -hmm. or consulate i guess and uh, because they had to vote. <laughs> so they had this wild party at the consulate, which was sponsored by one of the Australian wines. And, you know, they cast their votes and we took some pictures. And Peter Garrett eventually went, went into politics. And one of his opponents said, he's not eligible because he didn't vote in the last election. He was in New York. He couldn't have voted. And then Midnight Oil's office wrote to us and said, hey, did you happen to get any pictures at that voting party? And we had we had an actual picture of Peter putting his vote in the ballot box. Wow. So we were able to prove that <laughs> he saved his political career. Therefore, he was eligible to be running for office. And then of course you formed the break with was it three of the guys from Minato? Yeah. I moved to Australia and then they said, let's form a band. Their bass player from Midnight Oil Bones, he's a Kiwi. He went to New Zealand and he started playing with Neil Finn, but then he moved to America and he married a girl from Milwaukee, my hometown. Wow. And eventually he started living in Milwaukee. So he was living in Milwaukee, my town, and I was living in Australia playing with his old bandmates. We've created lives. Like we had to correct the imbalance of the bass world. <laughs> that was very funny. And the, the break, originally we just wanted to have a band. And we did try out a bunch of singers, like a lot of singers. And some of them were really good. But, but then in the end, we decided to be instrumental just to make it different than the Femmes and Midnight Oil. You know, it didn't really work. It's not like we became super popular or anything, but the music is great and the band was really good to play with. Yeah, Midnight Oil fans love that album. I hope so, if they've heard it. Yeah. I mean, we used to draw pretty good crowds when we would tour, but it was not on the same scale as Midnight Oil or The Femmes. I want to ask you about the three albums that you made solo in the late 80s. You jump around about... 20 genres in them they're quite fantastic you it seems like you had a lot of songwriting to get out of yourself like there's songs that sound hip-hoppy there's blues songs there's songs that i can't even classify was that the case did you just have so much stuff that you wanted to get out or are you naturally more kind of i suppose broad and experimental than the femme stuff would suggest well the femmes are we are a very open-minded band and if you look at our catalog we have quite a, a lot of variety but oh definitely yeah but i'm you know i'm even more eclectic than the band is and also not the only uh, after that I, I made some instrumental records which i wasn't even playing bass i was playing shakuhachi so i've got a number of other solo albums out that that are more like jazz or japanese music is that like a bamboo flute thing 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I always thought the solo albums were just okay. This is what I'm doing now. This is what what I'm into. Or I also thought I was at the time when I first was making those records. I was listening a lot to the shortwave radio. You know, like that was way before internet radio and websites and stuff. So I would listen to the radio from all over the world, like from the Middle East and India and Africa or whatever you could dial in. And I was jumping back and forth between all the stations and I thought, well, this is what I like to listen to. And this is the way I listen to music. What if I made records that were kind of like that? That's a good theory. And yeah, the albums still sound great. Was the band split up at that time? Or were you just on hiatus or how like what was going on there because it was you'd had maybe three three albums yeah the band split up in 86 i guess 85 86 and then i made those solo albums victor made some solo albums gordon was with another band called mercy seat and then we got back together again in 88 and then i think i made another solo album after that so yeah it was it was the band splitting up that prompted but also gave time and kind of a necessity to do something yeah and then in the mid 90s i read that you signed a mushroom and released a record that only came out in australia what was the reasoning behind that were you living here at the time no the the films um okay what was the story oh it was really simple we were going on tour in australia but the previous album had kind of i think we had already toured behind the previous album in australia and it had run its course and you know this was a time when they always wanted to tie touring and albums together so they asked us to make like a single or an ep and we booked the studio time and we went into the studio we had booked a week and after one day or two days we we had like a whole album recorded not just an ep so that's the reason why we put out an album so that album which was called rock you know we put it together really quickly so it's not overproduced it's a nice record uh eventually it did get released in the states and i think in europe but it was more like a as a reissue and you mentioned television before tom verlaine played on your last album How'd that come about? That must have been a thrill considering you're a fan. Well, we were in the studio and mostly on our last album that we made, which is called Hotel Last Resort, we just rehearsed and we recorded the stuff live. Maybe we overdubbed a few background vocals. You know, that's the way we usually work. But there was the title track, Hotel Last Resort, which if you listen to it, it sounds like a song but it's actually kind of a stream of consciousness type thing that doesn't hardly ever repeat anything and just goes all different places even though it sounds kind of like sounds like there's a structure but there isn't really a structure so we were having great difficulty getting on the same page with it and also gordon was having trouble remembering it so eventually We there was a drum machine which was actually from the 1930s or 40s that was in the studio. So it's a very very old drum machine. So we laid down the drum machine as a guide, and then Gordon overdubbed his guitars and vocals until he finally got through the whole song. So then we started building the track, and you know eventually we had the drums, the percussion, the, the bass, Gordon's guitar, and the vocals, and the sax. 
and then I said, yeah, we should probably put some Tom Verlaine style guitar on this. <laughs> and then Gordon says, well, you can, you can play like that. Why don't you just play it? <laughs> I said, why don't we just ask Tom to, to do it? <laughs> so I called him and he, and he said, yeah, sure. Send me the tracks. <laughs> so we sent it to Tom. And if you listen to it, there are two different guitars. One is clean and the other one is, is has effects on it. So when we mixed it, I assumed that he had been listening to his other track and that we had to mix them together. So that's what we did. And then I said, okay, so we, f we figured out how to make them work together. Oh, I didn't, I didn't think that they would both be happening. So <laughs> we used both tracks, even though he didn't really th think that we would. I mean, we don't really build our tracks in the studio very often, but that was an example of it. And yes, it was really nice to have Tom on there. Yeah, I bet. You mentioned earlier that the buskin was the format that you kind of started. Is it true that that's how you got discovered out the front of a Pretenders concert and they saw you and wanted you to support? Or is that like a nice little piece of record company fiction? No, it's absolutely true. It's amazing. We went to this um, club, which was called Century Hall. We called it Centipede Hole. <laughs> and uh, we we asked the talent booker, hey, we want to audition. We want to play at your club. And he says, oh, no, 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 I don't want to hear that. And we said, well, we have our instruments here. Can you just listen to a few songs? Nope. I'm going to have to ask you guys to leave. So we basically got kicked out. He wouldn't even listen to us. And we were dejected. And we walked past this theater where the pretenders were playing. And we thought, oh, let's just play here. Maybe some of the people who are buying tickets will give us some spare change. But actually, the pretenders came out. They heard us. And they asked us to open up the show. <laughs> wow. Which was great. So we were in front of about 3,000 people then. And how far along were you at this stage? We had only been together for a few months. Wow, that must be nerve-wracking. It was exciting. I mean, it was it wasn't it couldn't be nerve-wracking because it was so dreamlike. Yeah. It was more surrealistic than it was nerve-wracking. Was that the case for Woodstock 94? Cuz that was like 350,000 people according to reports. Yeah, something like that. Like I can't even fathom what that was like. What happened with that was they had booked two or, th or three nights of Woodstock, and then they realized that they were going to have a lot of people there already the night before the night that they advertised that they were starting. And they were worried that there might be chaos because people had nothing to do, nothing to listen to. So they hastily put together a bill, and we were the, we were the main act. And I can't remember who else played that night, but... When we played, there were like 300,000 people there. What's that like? Well, that's also surrealistic because when you look and you can't see the end of the audience, that's uncanny. Are you trying to remember your songs? Are you in the moment or is it just something where you just can't even conceive of it? Well, it sounds kind of corny, but I mean, a gig is a gig. I mean, you basically you... You get up on stage and you play to the best of your ability and you try to connect with the audience. Yeah. It's just not usual that the audience consists of that many people, but we still had the same basic job to do. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was great. It was incredible. We knew that and we have never played for that amount of people again. 
recently we played at Huntington Beach and there were about 30,000 people there. Maybe that was about a month ago. And also you couldn't see the end of the crowd, but we know that there were not 300,000. There were about 30,000, but still it's a good feeling to look out there and just not see the end of the crowd. And what's it like touring with the fans these days? Do you all get along? Is it a smoother kind of show in general? How is that experience? Because you obviously don't have to be doing it if you didn't want to. So you must still enjoy it to some level. Oh, we love it. We love it. We like playing together. We do a lot of improvising. So it's not like we're playing the same old, same old every night. You know, every night actually we do something new, something different, which is it's not jazz, but it's got kind of a jazz mentality, like where we take the basic song, but jam around it, not aimless jamming like the Grateful Dead, but we enjoy <laughs> that. Of course, we enjoy the audiences. I like to travel, you know, I like, I think most of us like to travel. And as long as there's a, de a demand, I don't see any reason not to do it. And with that in mind, your last record was 2019. Are there plans for a follow-up album at all? Well, COVID kind of put an end to that idea because like for some years, people didn't even want to get into a room with each other. Like even we were touring and Gordon wouldn't get into the dressing room with us. Like he would just, he would be on stage with us, but not, he wouldn't come on the bus. He wouldn't go in the dressing room. He was living in his own individual COVID bubble. Jeez. So he wouldn't get into a studio with us. So that was a problem. And I guess we could, we could have built tracks like we did with Tom Verlaine but we didn't so now we're at the point where you know people are coming out of COVID, and we can start talking about making another record which i, th I think it would be a really good idea the, the audience would like that too so what is the audience like at a violent fam show these days was it like age-wise well that's the amazing thing is that we used to have an audience of like 18 let's say 15 to 25 right and it would stay 15 to 25. That stayed like that for 20 years. It's like we'd lose the old fans and get new fans, but it was always about the same age group. And then that changed. Then the audience started to get old. <laughs> and now we still get the 15-year-olds into the band, but the like 50, 60-year-old people are coming to the shows as well. So it's it's a much wider demographic than it, than it ever was, which, you know, you... You can't choose your audience. So I'm just happy that we have an audience. Did you always get a strong audience in Australia? Because you said you came here quite early. Well, it's uh, it's our home away from home. It's our strongest and most loyal market outside of the United States. Is that because of Triple J, do you think? That would have had a lot to do with it because um, for a long time, one year, Blister in the Sun would be number one and then... Love Will Tear Us Apart was number two. And then the next year, it would be Love Will Tear Us Apart was number one. And Blister in the Sun was number three. And then it was like, smells like teen spirit. And, you know, it's like we, we were close to the top of the Triple J top 100 of all time. But now they don't play that kind of music anymore. No. But definitely it was, it was Triple J. Even uh, when it, there was the Double J before Triple J. Not the double J that they have now, but like before there was triple J, I think there was another thing, called, which was also. Yeah, yeah. We were on that. And every other uh, radio station that played that kind of music. 
And are you still writing songs at this point? Like, do you write regularly or is it the kind of thing that you pick up and put down when you've got a certain project? I haven't been writing, but I'm actually thinking about starting to make a point of composing music again. But the, the last, like, almost more than 20 years, I've been mainly practicing Japanese traditional music. Yeah, and you teach that, don't you? Yeah. So a lot of the... Um, a lot of the time and energy that I used to put into my rock solo albums and stuff and playing, uh, writing my own songs and doing them on the side, I've, I've switched into doing studies and playing that music because it's pretty time consuming. To do any kind of music well is time consuming. So that's been my focus. And how did you fall so heavily into that? I just randomly encountered uh, a shakuhachi teacher in New York City called, and his name is He's a Westerner. His name is James Neil Rocco Schleffer. And luckily, he heard me playing, like just playing, a, trying out a shakuhachi at a flute conference. And he said, hey, if you want to learn how to play that, give me a call. And I'm glad I did give him a call because he taught me how to play shakuhachi. And that got me into the whole philosophy, which is tied in with meditation. Uh, it's also a good instrument. Like right now, I'm... In a hotel room by myself i don't have the other members of the violent femmes or any musicians in here with me nor do i have a bass guitar but i have a shock watch so i'll be able to make music so to me it just kind of balances out my musical practice and what were you doing at a flute conference i had just moved to new york and i'm i mean if you notice my solo albums and also the femmes albums i play a lot of different instruments so i'm, yeah. I'm kind of a musical instrument junkie um and i'd like to try and play a lot of different instruments so i had just moved to new york and then they said that there was a conference in times square with all kinds of music uh, flutes from around the world and i just was curious to see what was going on and that's when i saw the shakuhachi and other other flutes from around the world but the shakuhachi was the one that interested me is the go daddy gone xylophone is that you yeah yeah that's that's incredible do you still play that live yeah we do one one of the other guys plays bass and i play the xylophone wow and it's a lot of fun and you know some people have mentioned to me recently that's about the most popular xylophone solo in in the world you know <laughs> i was like ever i would say trying to think about if if anything else was and it probably is if it's not the most it's one of the most popular and that was Brian Ritchie from the Violent Femmes and Artistic Director of Monofoma Festival, which starts February 15. You can find out more about that at monofoma.net.au. Paul Kelly's playing, Queens of the Stone Age are playing, Connie Barnett, he's put together an amazing, amazing lineup. And my guest next week is Art Alexorkis, lead singer of Everclear. Until then, 